Hello and welcome to today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Thursday, February 1st, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik, and here's our first story. It's entitled Four People Sentenced in Animal Neglect Case. It's written by Jeff Reinitz. Family members have been sentenced to probation in a 2022 search that found malnourished pets living in a Cedar Falls home littered with animal waste. Prosecutors had asked the court for prison time for William Nels Schock, age 47, Heather Ann Williams Orr, age 44, Thomas Layton Orr, Jr., age 34, and Tamara Lavone Schock, age 23, who pleaded to two misdemeanor counts of animal neglect causing injury. Tamara Schock also pleaded to two counts of child endangerment for children living at the home. Attorneys for the four had sought deferred judgments, meaning their cases would be removed from their criminal record. But District Associate Judge Brooke Jacobson on Monday instead sentenced them to up to two years in prison suspended to two years of supervised probation. He also ordered restitution payment to the Cedar Bend Humane Society, which cared for animals rescued from the home. Clearly, things got out of control and snowballed, Jacobson said. There had to be a degree of suffering for those animals. Defense attorneys for the group, who had lived at 1206 West 10th Street in Cedar Falls, said they had a reputation for taking in and caring for animals other people brought to them. Eventually, the number of pets outpaced their ability to care for them, according to officials. In November 2022, animal control officials and Cedar Falls code enforcement workers executed a search warrant at the house and found eight cats, seven dogs, seven rabbits, and a guinea pig. The dogs were housed in kennels and bedrooms downstairs. The dogs in the kennels were soaking in their own urine and feces and had to had no food or water. The laundry room contained caged rabbits in similar conditions. Litter boxes for the cats, which roamed free, hadn't been changed in days, and there was feces on the walls, according to court records. Prosecutor Jeremy Westendorf said the ammonia levels downstairs were more than three times higher than what is considered safe. Upstairs, the levels were slightly above the safe level. A Cedar Bend Humane veterinarian treated the pets for skin and ear infections, overgrown claws, fleas, urine burns, parasites, and respiratory infections. Next, Waterloo man arrested on gun charge in search. A Waterloo man had been has been arrested in action with a gun found during a series of searches at homes in October. Members of the Tri-County Drug Enforcement Tax Force found a 9mm handgun in a Pontiac Torrent that was parked at 2107 Weiss Court during the October 23rd search. A bag of marijuana was also found in the vehicle. DNA samples from the weapon were later linked to Tianzo Earl McNabb, according to court records. On Tuesday, McNabb was arrested for felon in possession of a firearm and possession of marijuana. Bond was set at $20,000. Court records show McNabb is currently on probation for weapons charges in a July 25, 2021 incident where he allegedly fired a shot during an argument with a neighbor on West Mullen Avenue. He also has a prior felony conviction from Cook County, Illinois records state. Cedar Falls man arrested following hours-long standoff. This also is written by Jeff Reinitz. A Cedar Falls man has been arrested on warrants out of Bremer and Marshall counties following an hours-long standoff at his home Tuesday night. 
Ryan Jeffrey Clink, age 46, was detained after members of the Cedar Falls Police Department's SWAT team surrounded his home at 1910 Rainbow Drive. Officers first went to the home around 4.30 p.m. Tuesday because of Clink's outstanding warrants, according to police. He allegedly retreated inside when he saw officers and barricaded himself inside and refused to exit. Authorities blocked off a section of Rainbow Drive during the incident. Officers eventually forced Clink out of the house with tear gas or a similar chemical agent, and he was detained at 9.45 p.m. He was charged with interference in connection with the standoff. Court records show he was also detained on a parole violation warrant in connection with a Marshall County burglary charge. He had served prison time for allegedly taking a Yamaha four-wheeler from a barn in Rhodes in 2016. He was released from prison in January 2021. Then in March 2021, he allegedly threatened a woman with a baseball bat when she was trying to drive her 15-year-old daughter to school in Janesville. He was arrested for assault while displaying a weapon. In April of 2021, he apparently failed to show up for an arraignment and a warrant was issued. Now we come to an article entitled, Stabbing Suspect Charged with Re-Entering Country. A Waterloo man has been sentenced to probation for attacking his girlfriend and her family members with a box cutter last year. Now federal authorities are prosecuting him for returning to the United States after he was deported. On Friday, Eslin Hernandez Mila was sentenced to 15 years in prison, suspended to two to five years of probation after he pleaded to charges of willful injury causing bodily injury, domestic assault with strangulation, and domestic assault with a weapon in Blackhawk County District Court in Waterloo. Authorities allege Hernandez was involved in an argument at his Polk Street home As it turned physical, he allegedly held a box cutter to his girlfriend's neck and then stabbed her and two male family members who attempted to intervene. Also Friday, an Immigration and Customs Enforcement agent submitted a complaint charging Hernandez with illegal re-entry in U.S. District Court. Court records allege Hernandez, a citizen of Honduras, had returned to the United States after having been removed from the country June 18th of 2018. Stabbing pepper spray attack result in charges. Bond has been set at $10,000 for a Waterloo woman arrested in connection with a stabbing Monday afternoon. Police and paramedics were called to the area of Randolph and West 2nd Streets around 4.25 p.m. and found a man suffering from what police described as a minor laceration. The identity of the man was immediate, wasn't immediately available. Witnesses told police the man and a woman were sitting in a Kia Optima when another woman drove up and approached them. She stabbed the man and sprayed the car with pepper spray, according to court records. Tanaya Alexis Burt, age 18, was arrested for first-degree burglary for allegedly reaching into the Kia and assaulting the occupants. An Illinois man allegedly met Independence Girl for sex. An Illinois man has been arrested for allegedly traveling to Independence to meet a teenage girl for sex last year. Logan Richard Hilliard, age 23, of Davis Junction, Illinois, turned himself in to the Buchanan County Sheriff's Office on January 24th. He is charged with three counts of third-degree sexual abuse, four counts of enticing a minor, and one count each of harboring a runaway and dissemination of obscene material to a minor. He was released pending trial. Independence police began investigating Hilliard in November of 2023. 
Authorities allege Hilliard met the girl through the Snapchat messaging app when she was 12 or 13 years old. A year or so later, on August the 19th, 2023, when the girl was 14, he allegedly traveled to Independence to meet her. They went to a Waterloo hotel and had sex, according to court records. He also picked her up on November the 15th, 2023, and they parked in an Independence parking lot and had sex in his car, court records state. The girl was later interviewed at the Child Protection Center, and her accounts were verified through text records and hotel guest records. Court records also allege he sent her a picture of his penis. Police obtained the victim's phone during the investigation, and Hilliard, apparently unaware, continued to send text messages asking for pictures and making sexual comments in December of 2023, records state. Next up is an article entitled... Waverly Shellrock Superintendent Finalists Interview Today. Decision expected by board soon after visits are concluded. This is written by Holly Hudson Hill in the Dateline is Waverly. Two candidates remain in contention for the Waverly Shellrock Community Schools Superintendent position after a third finalist accepted a job with another school district. Jason Wester, currently the superintendent with the Tipton Community School District, removed himself from the interview process after taking the top job with the West Burlington Independent School District. The remaining candidates, David Hill and Anthony Ryan, will interview with the Board of Education today as scheduled, and a decision is expected soon after interviews are concluded. Hill, age 50, has been the superintendent with the North Tama County Community School District for nine years. For four of those years, he also served as superintendent for Gladbrook Rhinebeck Community School District. The North Tama District serves 483 students, compared to well over 2,000 students served in the Waverly Shellrock District. He earned a bachelor's degree in agricultural education from Iowa State University and a master's in education leadership and a specialist degree in education administration from Drake University. Previously, Hill was a high school teacher in the Benton Community School District for nine years and an elementary principal in the Union Community School District for 11 years. I have broad experience and instructional leadership at all levels, PK through 12, said Hill. He grew up in Dysert, 13 miles straight south of Hawkeye Community College campus, he said. He and his wife, Tanya, have three adult sons. He is a teacher at Hoover Middle School in Waterloo. Hill said as superintendent of a small school district, he wears a lot of hats. I wish I had more downtime. I like to be involved in my community, in community organizations and community development, he said. One of our sons lives near Glacier National Park, and we like to go visit him and our daughter-in-law when we get vacation time about once a year. I would like to travel more in the future. Hill also has a knack for creating balloon animals, hats, and flowers, he said. I incorporate them into school-related promotions and events. Hill is honored to be a finalist. The reputation of the Waverly Shell Rock School District is outstanding, he said. When applying for a superintendent position, you want to look at the mission of the school district. The mission of the Waverly Shell Rock District is to create a passion for learning that will sustain students for a lifetime. That is something I can get behind 100%. Work skills change and evolve as the world changes and evolves. If you can engage students at an early age and sustain that, You create great employees, great family members, and great members of the community. It is a great learning environment. 
Waverly Shell Rock has been able to maintain a very reasonable school tax rate. Residents are supportive of their schools and there is a culture of excellence within the district. It's exciting to have the possibility of joining the district at this time. They have done a lot to move the district forward and the community has shown great support in that area. Like other districts, Waverly Shell Rock faces some challenges. I think the greatest concerns are the same challenges most districts are facing, Hill said. While the financial trajectory in Waverly Shell Rock is good, as education savings accounts are being phased in, we have to look at how that might affect the district financially. Waverly Shell Rock Community Schools can compete with any private school, home school, or any other area district. The dismantling of area education agencies is a real reason for concern for Waverly Shell Rock and all other districts as they will face major challenges both educationally and financially. I have seen the most recent version of the legislation introduced by Governor Kim Reynolds. My concerns remain, he said. Hill is confident his strengths would serve Waverly Shell Rock well. One thing that is needed in all school districts is transparency and excellent communication, he said. These are public schools, and people deserve to know what is happening. I have achieved that both in both districts I have served. The skills you gain in smaller districts are easily transferable to larger districts, he said. Currently, Waverly Shell Rock Superintendent Ed Clamforth came from Edgewood, Colesburg. Enrollment in the Edgewood, Colesburg district is just over 500 students. Everything I've done and everything I've experienced in my years as an educator have prepared me to lead a district like Waverly Shell Rock. Over the last couple of weeks since I've become aware I was a finalist, I've spent quite a bit of time in Waverly. I've met and talked with city officials, residents, district employees. I've come away with the feeling that Waverly Shell Rock may be a great fit for me. Ryan, age 51, is currently the superintendent and director of special education in the East Marshall Community School District. He and his wife, Michelle, have three children. He is originally from Manly. His wife works for the Great Prairie Area Education Agency, so the family has a front row seat to the proposed overhaul of the AEA system. We'll be fine, Ryan said. It wouldn't be the first time the state has flipped education on a dime. Ryan earned his undergraduate degree from the University of Northern Iowa and his master's in education specialist degrees from Drake University. The East Marshall District serves about 850 students. Ryan said Waverly Shell Rock is a very attractive community and district, especially with its updated facilities. It is very well-rounded, he said. It sells itself. There is strong community support. It is truly a student-focused environment. Ryan feels he has the skills to address concerns identified in the district's recent stakeholder survey taken by staff and community members. I can assist and lead the district by really focusing on those topics such as teacher retention and satisfaction, communication and academics and curriculum, and make sure resources are provided to meet the students' needs. We're talking about taking Waverly Shell Rock to the next level. Ryan was a sixth grade teacher with the Louisa Muscatine Community School District. I also taught driver's ed during the summer, Ryan said. That was my favorite position because the kids wanted to be there. I didn't have to coax them. He was a principal in both Biggsville and Sherrard, Illinois, which is roughly the size of the Waverly Shell Rock District. He served as superintendent for the 
Akron, Westfield, and Centerville community school districts prior to his current position. In his spare time, Ryan supports his kids in their activities. I've also been a lifelong fisherman. I love being on the water. Our family spends a lot of time in school buildings. Anytime we can spend outside gardening or running with our dogs, we enjoy it. I'm a pretty straightforward guy. I am a family man. Those closest to me would say I have a high level of empathy. I was a school bus driver in Cedar Falls. I was a volunteer fighter fighter and a state certified emergency medical technician. I am on the Ronald McDonald House Board of Directors, he said. Even though as superintendents we often have to make tough decisions, I wholeheartedly want to help. We entered education because we care about people. Ryan is excited for the interview process. It is a wonderful opportunity. I'm looking forward to the experience, he said. The next superintendent will begin leading the Waverly Shell Rock Community School District, effective July 1. And in another article from Waverly, audit finds Waverly's finances in fine shape. This is written by Andy Malone. Emergency cash reserves shrank 26.54% in the city's latest audit presented Monday to the city council. The reserves, also known as the unassigned general fund balance, dropped from $2.11 million to $1.55 million during the fiscal year ending June 30th. Those funds are utilized as a last resort and are generally considered as a measure of financial stability. City Administrator James Bronner, however, views cash reserves more broadly as all categories of the general fund balance, non-spendable, restricted, assigned, and unassigned. The general fund balance totaled $3.31 million, a 4.09% increase over $3.18 million from the previous year. That latest figure includes a $1.52 million of reserves restricted to use for the library. Additionally, the city's general obligation bonded debt is $26.19 million. That is an increase of 2.18% from $25.63 million the previous year, but well below 5% of its total assessed value for all property. That percentage is the Iowa Constitution's mandated limit for cities' property tax-backed bonds. For Waverly, the limit would be $43.13 million. Other loan notes and revenue bonds total $10.03 million and $3.37 million, respectively. Bronner would not single out any project as driving the city's debt, but anticipates water pollution control being one area in future audits to keep an eye on. When he evaluates Waverly's financial health, Bronner takes an all-encompassing approach to the lengthy document put together by the city's finance department rather than looking at any one number. State laws require audits for cities to be conducted by the state auditor or by certified public accountants. Waverly's audit was completed by Onawa Firm Williams & Company, P.C. In addition to meeting state requirements, the audit must meet federal requirements and be in accordance with generally accepted auditing standards. It must examine, among other things, the financial condition and resources of the city and accuracy of the municipality's accounts and reports. Waverly received a clean opinion overall. It's one of the highest levels of audit opinion you can receive from them, so that was key to see, Bronner told the council. In other Cedar Valley news, Home Show starts Friday. 
Mark and Matt Harris, kings of swag, among the featured presenters. This is written by Melody Parker. Mark and Matt Harris of Storage Wars, better known as the Kings of Swag, will be presenters at this year's Eastern Iowa Home and Landscaping Show Friday through Sunday. The show takes place downtown at the Waterloo Convention Center, 200 West 4th Street. Hours are 3 to 8 p.m. Friday, 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. Saturday, and 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Sunday. Admission is $7 in advance and $10 at the door. Advanced tickets can be purchased online at www.easterniowahomeshow.com. The 72nd annual show is billed as a one-stop shop for the latest products, trends, and area experts in residential home design needs, as well as featuring exhibits by home builders, remodelers, interior designers, landscapers, and more. The Harris Brothers will talk fashion, design, food, and being in the spotlight during their seminars at 11 a.m. and 5 p.m. Saturday and 2 p.m. Sunday. The identical twins are Los Angeles natives who teamed up to create the celebrity giving company Wow Creations. For nearly a decade, the duo has provided gift bags to the Oscars, Emmys, and Grammys, ABC's The Bachelor, Kentucky, Derby, Sundance Film Festival, Miss Universe, Miss USA, Soul Train Awards, and numerous festivals and events. In addition, they are stars of A&E's Storage Wars, Judge Beauty Pageants, and are working on their own reality show and a documentary about their lives. Other seminars will include a DIY class in paper flower design at 5 p.m. Friday and 3 p.m. Saturday and Sunday, featuring Sherry Collins, Storage and kitchen design at 6 p.m. Friday, 4 p.m. Saturday, and 11 a.m. Sunday. And interior design expectations at 1 p.m. presented by Ferrison Design and Solar. And geothermal heating cooling at 7 p.m. Friday, 2 p.m. Saturday, and 1 p.m. Sunday presented by Rabe Hardware. Next up, HCC seeks bids on courtyard work. This is written by Angela Sturm McLaughlin. Hawkeye Community College is seeking bids for work on its proposed first impressions courtyard. The estimated cost of the project is $4.7 million, including architect fees and contingencies. The project is intended to create a more inviting space in the interior courtyard of the main campus, according to board documents. It will entail landscaping, tree plantings, new outdoor seating, new lighting, areas for group seating, a recreation space, and expanded bioswale water retention. In addition to the aesthetic aspects, the project will incorporate a new water main reroute to replace the existing aging and failing main. New gas lines will be run as well. The area to be renovated is a few acres, the size of a few football fields. It includes the open space surrounded by and in between the Hawkeye Center, Physical Plant, and Brock Student Center, as well as Black Hawk, Bremer, Buchanan, Butler, Tama, and Grundy Halls. The board will hold a public hearing on the project February the 27th and is expected to approve a contract. Bids will be opened earlier that day. A pre-bid conference will be held at 10 a.m. February 8th in the upper-level boardroom at Hawkeye Center, 1501 East Orange Road. The schematic design and specifications are available to contractors from RDG Planning and Design in Omaha, Nebraska. 
Construction could begin as early as March and be completed during the fall semester, according to Mary Pat Moore, Executive Director of Public Relations and Marketing. In other news, the board learned there will be a grand opening celebration for the newly remodeled Grundy Hall on April the 18th. Hawkeye Center Rotunda Remodeling has started. Woodruff Construction was awarded a $273,350 contract to renovate the lobby. The renovation will upgrade the look and feel of the building's rotunda area to make it more appealing for students and staff. Minor remodeling was completed in 2015 to make lower-level restrooms Americans with Disabilities Acts compliant. A major renovation took place in 2008 to add the grand staircase and move the upper-level cafeteria to the newly opened Brock Student Center. And bids for courthouse work lower than expected. Renovations to first, second floors, basement, cost under $1.9 million estimate. This is written by Maria Cooper. Blackhawk County will pay less than budgeted for the renovation of its courthouse. The Board of Supervisors read bids for the project on Tuesday. Renovations to the basement, first and second floors, were expected to cost about $1.9 million. The county received bids from two Waterloo-based companies. Cardinal Construction bid a total cost of $1.8 million, and Peters Construction bid $1.7 million. In the basement of the building, the conference room will be expanded to accommodate in-person voting. In the November election, voters will be able to line down the corridor of the basement and have seating as well as vote at multiple ballot boxes. Elections currently happen on the second floor of the courthouse in the hallway. The cafeteria will be gutted to provide more space for the county attorney and to install a nursing mother's area for the staff and public. The mother's room will have a chair, table, and sink. Staff would still have to access would still have access to food in the building in a mini-market accessible by keyboard. In the key card, excuse me. In the first floor treasurer's office, the area will become more user-friendly for the public and provide more security for the workers. There will be the same amount of space, but the redesign will allow for a queuing system similar to the Department of Transportation and seating to streamline the process. On the second floor, the auditor's office and the elections office will switch sides of the hall to allow easier access to elections office workers to the equipment they use. The space accountants will use also the space accountants use will also increase so workers can easily see the public at the counter. In addition, the second floor will have larger conference rooms and a bigger shared kitchenette. After construction, every department in the courthouse will meet Americans with Disabilities Act accessibility requirements. In other business, the county gave final approval to a contract with NAFCARE, Inc. for medical, mental, and dental services at the county jail for $8.8 million. The bid was approved in October, but the contract begins February 1st and ends June 30th of 2027. That's a care of the local news, so I'll read this story from the front page entitled Panel Tables Overhaul, Republicans Pause Bill on Proposed Changes to Special Education. It's written by Lib McCullough. Iowa House lawmakers decided to pause a bill that would overhaul the state's area education agencies and allow schools to opt out of their special education services. 
The decision came after an hour-long subcommittee meeting Wednesday in which school officials and parents of students with disabilities pleaded with lawmakers to kill a bill they worry would hurt special education and threaten funding for the dozens of other services they provide. Republican Representative Schuyler Wheeler of Hull, chair of the House Education Committee, said he and Representative Taylor Collins of Minneapolis, the other Republican on the subcommittee, would have further conversations before moving the bill forward. Democratic Representative Sharon Stust- Sue Steckman of Mason City voted against the bill advancing. A Senate subcommittee was scheduled to meet at 2 p.m. Wednesday on the bill. Reynolds said the bill, House Study Bill 542, is a response to lagging test scores for students with disabilities in Iowa and the comparatively high amount of Iowa spends on those students. Iowa's nine AEAs, which are governmental agencies separate from the Department of Education, provide special education to school districts in their boundaries and assist with classroom equipment and media services, professional development, and talented and gifted instruction, among other services. Under the proposal which Reynolds amended this week, federal and state special education funds would be sent directly to schools who could then decide whether or not to contract with the AEAs. If they do not, schools would still have the legal obligation to educate students with disabilities and could obtain that instruction from third parties like a private company. Currently, AEAs receive special education funding for the schools in their districts and are tasked with providing education to those districts. AEAs would also be allowed to provide education and media services to schools if requested. Reynolds told reporters Wednesday the goal of the bill is to elevate education and outcomes for students with disabilities. We need to just step back and start to ask some of those questions with the overall objective of making sure that we're doing everything we can to get these kids with disabilities the education that they deserve and hopefully see better outcomes, she said. So you can't police yourself, get all the money, mandate, I use you, and not be held accountable when the scores are not reflecting what they should be. That's unconscionable. Under the proposal, many of the AEA's operations and oversight would also come under the purview of the State Department of Education. Oversight is currently performed by local boards of directors. The property tax money that AEA education funds AEA education services would go directly to schools and the levy that funds media services would be cut. Schools could still pay for media services with education service funds. Suzanne Castello, a resident of Kellogg who has a son with learning disabilities attending Grinnell High School, said the bill is an extension of lawmakers' past actions directing money away from public education. She said the staff and administrators at Iowa's AEAs are vital for identifying the services students need. If I had to choose between somebody in my community and somebody who's slick, competing from the outside, who's selling a service, I will choose the people that I know who are in my community doing the hard work on the ground, she said. Reynolds's amended proposal would keep intact a $35 million property tax levy that schools can use to pay for the AEA's educational services, but removed a $33 million property tax stream that funds the agency's media services. The education service funds could be used for media services. The amendment would also dictate that all AEA services be reasonable and consistent with current market rates for such services. 
The amendment would move back the deadline for schools to opt in to AEA services from April 30th to February 1st in future years. In the first year, the deadline would be June 1st. Under the proposed amendment, AEAs would have the option of adding special education coverage to a school district at any time after the deadline. The amendment would not change the proposal to bump the starting pay for teachers up to $50,000. Democrats said Monday they are not satisfied with the new proposal. Senator Sarah Trone Garriott, a Democrat from Waukee, said the amended bill includes more state control of AEAs than the original bill. Reynolds's amendment keeps much of the original language that would move an array of oversight, budget, and operations responsibilities to the AE of the AEAs under the Department of Education. It does nothing good to make this bill better, Trone Garriott said, and it is not a response to the concerns of Iowans. It's just kind of moving some things around, but nothing has really changed. Trone Garriott also said she was concerned about the amendment not reinstating the property tax funding for media services to school districts. The previous bill prohibited media services. This bill allows them, but it doesn't fund them, she said. So both bills cut the money to fund the services. The schools don't get that money. It just goes away. Steckman, the Democratic committee member from Mason City, said she thinks the amendment does not do much to address Democrats' concerns. Steckman said Democrats don't have a problem with reviewing the AEAs, but she said the proposal should have been made in consultation with teachers, parents, and AEA staff. Doesn't look much different than what we had, she said, and why you want to put all that power into the Department of Ed in Des Moines and take it away from local schools and AEAs, I have no idea. Officials with Central Rivers AEA said Wednesday they still find the governor's proposed changes alarming and Reynolds's emendations did little to alleviate their concerns. We don't see how this bill actually will improve outcomes or closes gaps for children with disabilities, said Joel Peterson, chief administrator of Central Rivers Area Education Association. Every kid's success looks different, and often sometimes success does not show up on a standardized test score. I think that's getting lost a little bit in this discussion. He said Reynolds's reform proposal seems focused on shifting control to Des Moines just months after state officials showered praise on Central Rivers. A year ago, we had our accreditation visit from the Department of Education, and our summary said, Share your story. You do so many good things. Now a year later, we are being told our system isn't working, Peterson said. It goes back to the people in Des Moines have almost all of the oversight for the AEA, said Beth Strike, Director of Communications and Creative Services. You're listening to the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. If you have any concerns or comments on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. Now we turn to today's obituaries, and first we remember Kenneth D. Bogus age 77, of Charles City, who died Saturday at Lynn Haven Rehab and Healthcare in New Hampton. Memorial services will be held at 1.30 p.m. Friday, February the 2nd, 2024, at Fullerton Hogg Funeral Home, 401 Blunt, Charles City. A gathering for friends and family will be from 5 to 7 p.m. Thursday at the funeral home. 
Inurnment services will be in Sunnyside Memory Gardens, Charles City. Fullerton Hogg Funeral Home and Cremation Services, 401 Blunt in Charles City, Iowa. You can reach them at area code 641-228-4211 or at www.fullertonfh.com or on Facebook at Fullerton Funeral Home. Next, we remember Mrs. Janice Jan Jensen of Cedar Falls, Iowa, who passed away January 18, 2024, in Phoenix, Arizona, at the age of 76. Jan was born November 17, 1947, in Cedar Falls to the late Kenneth and Dorothy White. Jan graduated from Cedar Falls High School and received her bachelor's degree from Upper Iowa University. Her career at John Deere lasted 34 years. Jan and her husband loved traveling, being with friends and family, and spending the cold Iowa winters in Arizona for the past 20 years. A celebration of life is being planned at a later date. Next, we remember Darcy Janelle McVeigh, a celebration of life service for Darcy Janelle McVeigh, age 52, of Janesville, Iowa, will be at 11 a.m. on Saturday, February the 3rd, 2024, at Walnut Ridge Baptist Church, with a visitation beforehand starting at 10 a.m., Darcy slipped gently away from us and entered majestically into glory at 11 a.m. Saturday, January the 27th, 2024, at her home. She is seeing her Savior and Lord's face and rejoicing with them. We know that she has received her crowns in heaven and is walking streets of gold and living in the mansion that Jesus went ahead to prepare for her. It's hard for us who are left behind, but we trust in God's perfect plan for her and our lives. In lieu of flowers, memorial gifts can be brought to the church at the time of service or sent to the church or sent directly to the family. Now we remember Lester L. Nicewanger, who died Sunday, January 28, 2024, at Western Home Communities Dairy Suites. Funeral services will be 10 a.m. Thursday, February the 1st, 2024, at Trinity Baptist Bible Church in Cedar Falls, Visitation will be 4 to 6 p.m. Wednesday, January 31st at Richardson Funeral Service in Cedar Falls. Burial will take place in Greenwood Cemetery in Cedar Falls. Memorial may be directed to the church online guestbook at www.richardsonfuneralservice.com. Now we remember David E. Eicher age 72, who passed away at Oak Park Assisted Living on Thursday, January the 25th, 2024. Dave attended Cedar Falls High School, Hawkeye Institute of Technology, and after his military service, University of Iowa, receiving his electrical engineer degree. Dave served in the Army and was honorably discharged in 1978. He married Sally Henning in 1973, and they had a son, Andrew Eicher. Dave and Irenia, Irenia Bondarevich were married in 1996 in Russia. Dave was an electrical engineer for Rockwell Collins from 1974 to 2015. He had many interests throughout his life, including construction, sailing, flying planes, skiing, volleyball, building electrical projects, playing guitar and piano, singing, and especially time with his family and fellowship with the friends, including those in Russia and Ukraine. Now we remember Alexander John Heath, age 38, of Cedar Falls, who died Tuesday, January the 23rd, 2024, at Mercy Cedar Falls Medical Center. A celebration of life for Alexander will be at 11 a.m. on Saturday, February the 3rd, 2004, at Dahl Van Hove Schoof Funeral Home. 
The service will be live-streamed. Please visit Alexander's obituary page at https colon slash slash www.dahlfuneralhome.com. Visitation will be from 10 a.m. until the time of service on Saturday at the funeral home. Inurnment will be at Hillside Cemetery, Cedar Falls. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to the family. Now we remember Sharon Wolf, age 71, of Waterloo, who died Thursday, January the 25th, 2024, at Unity Point Health Allen Hospital of Natural Causes. Her memorial service will take place Saturday, February the 10th at 1 p.m. at Lock at Tower Park, 4140 Kimball, with a visitation one hour prior to the service. Memorials may be directed to the family. Condolences may be left at www.lockefuneralservices.com. And we remember Craig Miller Michelson, age 73, of Cedar Falls, who passed away on Tuesday, January the 30th, 2024, at Pinnacle Specialty Care of Cedar Falls. He was born in Cedar Falls on December, April 6th, 1950, the son of Miller and Evelyn Fram Michelson, Jr. Craig will be laid to rest at Fredsville Cemetery at a later date. Condolences can be left at www.dahlfuneralhome.com. Well, let's turn to the sports page, and we've got an article from High School Boys Basketball. It's entitled, Dedicated to the Ritual, Hudson Senior Davis Breaks School Scoring Mark. It's written by Al Ethan Petrick. Salmon and Potatoes. Camden Davis eats the same meal before every Hudson Boys basketball contest. Salmon and potatoes. It sounds simple and weird, Davis said, but that is just my go-to. The six-foot-five senior forward is not quite sure when the ritual meal started, but he knows for certain he ate it before a game against Denver on January the 6th, 2023. Davis went off for 34 points on an 11 of 15 shooting night from the field and secured 14 rebounds, including seven offensive boards. The double-double helped to lead the Pirates to an 81-63 win over the Cyclones. Since that Friday night, Davis eats the same meal, salmon and potatoes, the night before each game. Before the Pirates' 79-54 win over Union to advance to the 2023 Class 2A Substate 3 Championship, Davis ate salmon and potatoes. He recorded a 24.15 rebound double-double. Before the Pirates' 71-34 win over Janesville in the 2023-2024 senior open, season opener, Davis, who posted 24 points and 8 boards against the Wildcats, ate salmon and potatoes. And before he set the Hudson Boys basketball all-time career scoring record on Saturday, Davis ate salmon and potatoes. Davis needed 13 points to break the record heading into Saturday's contest with Center Point Urbana. He managed 21 against the Storm and Pointers to break the previous record of 1,346 career points held by Jason Bauer, who played for Iowa after leading Hudson to a 1A title in 1993 and a third-place finish in 1994 in 2A. Davis knew he was close to breaking the record, but following a 21-point game and a 75-40 win over Dyke New Hartford, Hudson head coach Sean Leonard informed the Pirates' prolific scorer just how close he was. Nothing changed about Davis's approach. 
I did not to want to make I did not want to make a scene or all that, Davis said. I did not want it to be about me. I wanted the team to get the win in the first place. So it was nice to get it, but we needed the win first. Davis got his wish. The lack of a scoreboard with individual player scoring totals at Center Point Urbana High School made breaking the record a bit of a surprise, though Davis said he realized he made history when murmurs made their way around the arena before the crowd erupted in applause. After securing the win-breaking the record, Davis, who also owns the Hudson all-time rebounding record, which he broke as a junior, did not undersell the achievement's importance. It means a lot to me, Davis said. It took a whole lot of hard work for me and my teammates, them pushing me to where I am today. As a team, they support me. They do a whole bunch of stuff for me and with me. It means a lot to all of us. On Monday, during the Pirates' senior night's festivities, the school honored Davis with a commemorative basketball, which Bauer presented to Davis. I was glad that all the people there were there to support, Davis said, and see what team I was playing with and who I am playing with. After an 18-point outing on Monday against AGWSR, Davis stands at 1,373 career points and counting. Before he was a double-double machine for the Pirates, and before the debut of Salmon and Potatoes, Davis made his mark early on as a freshman. Leonard, an assistant with the Pirates in Davis's freshman year, 2020-2021, said the Hudson coaching staff planned to have all players, freshmen through seniors, practice together for the first three days. Then the coaches would divide the players into varsity, junior varsity, etc., it was not more than half an hour into that first practice that year I asked the head coach, Hey, who's that kid? Leonard said. He said, It's Camden Davis. I said, Yeah, he needs to be up practicing varsity with us. A six-foot hybrid forward guard, Davis's high motor stood out to Leonard during that first practice. Four years later, Davis recalls that he could not help but feel a little nervous heading into that first practice. I was not very big, Davis said. I felt like I was a scrawny little kid out there playing against adults. It was just a different feel, but I made my groove and I fit into the team. I did not want to make a mistake and then they all got on me for it, but the senior class my freshman year was really nice. I was friends with all of them. I got along with them and they believed in me. They saw potential in me. Davis started 12 games his freshman season and finished as the Pirates' number three scorer, averaging 6.3 points per game. The next year, his role changed drastically. He became kind of the guy, as a sophomore, Leonard said. His sophomore year, we started three of four sophomores. We really relied on that sophomore group, with Camden being the most vital part of that. His role changed, and he was ready for it. Davis tripled his scoring average to lead Hudson with 18 points per game and an average of 8.5 rebounds per contest while starting all 23 games. I had to make a statement for the team and for me, Davis said. I just had to step up and play my game and help my teammates play their game, just play as a whole. Davis continued to be the go-to player for Hudson as a junior, scoring 19.7 points per game to go along with an average of 10.6 rebounds, breaking the rebounding record during the Pirates' postseason run. And, as a senior, Davis pushed his scoring average to 20.8 and his rebounding average to 10.9. According to Leonard, a commitment to putting extra work plus 
a dedication to nutrition played a key role in Davis's ability to transform into the player he is today for the 15-1 third-ranked Pirates. I'm always working on everything, Davis said, being the best with my abilities. As for nutrition, Davis credited his mom, Northern Iowa assistant volleyball coach Kim McCaffrey Davis, who played volleyball at UNI from 1997 to 2001 with help, helping with that aspect of being an athlete. She has kind of helped me find a good nutrition, recovery, all of that stuff, Davis said. She helps a lot with that. Though his mom helped him determine the right diet, Davis is the one who prepares the salmon and potatoes. It comes in a box from Sam's Club, and I just throw it in the oven, Davis said. In high school girls basketball, Cedar Falls sharpshooter Knutson having great year. This is written by Jim Nelson. When Grace Knutson talks about putting up a million practice shots, she might be talking in general terms. But Cedar Falls head girls basketball coach Greg Groen doesn't doubt that Knutson, during her four years with the Tigers, has put up a million practice shots. Last Friday, in a 57-27 win over Ames at home, Knutson scored 18 points, moving her past former Tiger great Emerson Green into fifth all-time in Cedar Falls' career scoring list, 1,299 and counting. It has been a big season and a big last 10 days for Knutson, the Drake University commit who is averaging a career-best 24.4 points per game. What a lot of people don't understand is that didn't this just didn't happen for Grace, Groen said. It's the unforeseen hours. Nobody knows how much time she has spent in the gym making herself become a good shooter. And just how good of a shooter has Knutson become? Already the career three-pointer made leader in school history, Knutson has made 210 and counting in her career. Her sharp shooting abilities were no better displayed than on January the 20th in an 83-43 victory over Iowa City West at home. One night after making just two of 13 shots from behind the arc in a slugfest of a game against Cedar Rapids Xavier, Knutson started splashing home three-pointers early against the Trojans. In a game that had just a 15-point difference at the start of the fourth quarter, Knutson kept on making them, and when it was all said and done, she had made 13 of 17 three-pointers en route to a 44-point night, breaking the school single-game records of three-pointers made by Anna Sandvold, eight in 2022 and points in a game amy swisher 40 in 2000 none of us had our best game on friday so to see all those shots go in it was really fun knutson said in the fourth quarter they just kept going in so i kept shooting them i didn't know i had made 13 until somebody told me after the game i just kind of sat back and watched it was kind of crazy as you watched it added Rowan. knutson said a lot of that night comes down to mentality confidence and her teammates we had a walkthrough on Saturday morning after the Xavier game, so I was able to get back into the gym and shoot, Knutson said. We, the team and I, have uh, shot the basketball a million times, so we have put in the time during the off season, during the season. Then it comes down to knowing I can make those shots. Confidence is key, too. You just have to believe in yourself and your teammates. Many of the triples Knutson drained in that game came in transition, and that is where Knutson says her teammates did a great job. It was what was working, Knutson said. I talked to them out on the court to let them know I'm coming from behind, and they know I usually trail a little bit. They just did a great job of finding me, realizing I had the hot hand and kept on passing to me. Cedar Falls has won 14 straight since a four-point loss to Ankeny back in November. 
Groen says Knudsen needs to continue to play her role of senior leader on and off the court. The girls feed off her energy, Groen said. After a young team lost in the regional finals last year, Knudsen said the bar has been set a little higher. However, the focus is on the four remaining games for the Tigers, who beat Cedar Rapids Jefferson Tuesday night. We talk about how about never getting too high or too low, Knutson said. We have to stay true to who we are, keep playing the game we play. We will see what happens, but we need to remain confident. In other high school girls basketball news, Riceville staves off late Regents rally. This is written by Ethan Petrick. Riceville staved off a late rally from Waterloo Christian and held on for a 51-42 win over the Regents in a girls basketball matchup in Waterloo on Tuesday night. Trailing 35-30 at the beginning of the fourth quarter, the Regents reeled off a 7-0 run to take a 37-35 lead on the Wildcats before Riceville closed on a 16-5 tear. We fight back, Waterloo Christian co-head coach Laura Johnson said, We are not going to get beat by anybody by 15, 20, or 30 points. That is not the kind of team we are, and that is not the kind of players we have. We have players who fight back. No matter what the score is, they're going to give it at their all. This is always something we can be proud of because our girls really fight the whole time. Riceville forced Waterloo Christian into a situation in which the Regents needed a late rally via a dominant first-half showing. Riceville head coach Darcy Fair said she felt the Wildcats played focused and came ready to play on Tuesday night after suffering their lone defeat, a road loss to Duncanton, 49-39, 12 days prior. The loss made us refocus as a team, Fair said. Coming out, playing hard, playing together, we needed that refocus. We have had a good couple weeks at practice after that and just are really locked in on what we want to accomplish. The Wildcats took a 16-8 lead in the first eight minutes, riding a 7-2 run into the, into the lead in the first four minutes of action. In the second quarter, the Regents scored five of the first seven points to trim the margin to 18-13 Wildcat advantage, but Riceville powered by Samantha Wilderberg. Wilbur Ding, who scored 10 points in the first half, extended its lead once more with a 7-0 run. A Kylie Dvorak layup just before the buzzer gave Riceville an 11-point, 27-16 lead at halftime. Out of the break, Waterloo Christian surged with a 9-0 run, punctuated by a three-pointer from Regents senior Katie Costello to cut the lead to 27-25. Riceville regained control of the game with a 6-0 run to take a 35-30 lead into the third quarter, setting up the Regents' ill-fated comeback. Fair noted that when the Regents took the lead in the fourth quarter, she urged her team to remain calm during a timeout. You know what to do, Fair said. You have been in high-pressure situations before. Just stay locked in, play solid defense, and the points will come. They executed well. We made a couple changes defensively. That helped as well. That defense fed into our offense. The Wildcats remained calm and locked down in the stretch. With two minutes to play, Wilderberg connected on a tough layup to push Riceville lead to 44-40. In the next possession, junior Tilati Fair managed to steal and sank a fast break layup, which ultimately put the game out of reach. Up next, the Wildcats face Osage at home on Thursday at 7.15 p.m. The Regents return to action on Friday with a road contest against Meskwaki Settlement slated for 6 p.m. And on the boys' side, Waterloo Christian catches fire in victory. Waterloo Christian turned a three-point halftime lead into a 34.90-56 drubbing of Riceville on Tuesday. 
Waterloo Christian returns to action on Friday with a road matchup against Meskwaki Settlement, scheduled for 7.45 p.m. Riceville returns to action on Thursday with a road game against Roxford, scheduled for 7.30 p.m. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. If you have any comments or questions, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. 